you don't really want to have four visionaries on your team. That's not going to go too well, right? You need to have a maker. I believe you really need an athlete. You may need an accidental. And the accidental sounds odd, but the accidental is this person who just is so open to serendipity and will often take something that seems like a crazy hobby enthusiast endeavor and turn it into GoPro. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. What do you get when you cross an award-winning investigative journalist with an innovation expert who has guided founders and startups in Silicon Valley and around the world? Give up? You get my guest today, author and innovation pioneer, Jonathan Littman. As an author and journalist, Jonathan has made a name for himself as an investigative reporter who has written exposés on everything from sports and crime to the sometimes seedy underbelly of the tech world. He has been a Pulitzer Prize finalist and was among the first people to ever work Silicon Valley as a beat. He wrote about a young Bill Gates in the early 1980s. He covered Steve Jobs before he was a household name. He profiled Jeff Bezos when we still thought of Amazon as just a rainforest in South America. And somewhere along the way, his work caught the attention of the founders of the renowned design firm, IDEO. He collaborated on a series of extremely influential books with the IDEO co-founder, David Kelly, and brother, Tom Kelly, including the bestseller, The Art of Innovation. Jonathan's work with IDEO was a springboard to an entirely new career as he became an in-demand speaker and consultant for startups and entrepreneurs. He has since founded the incubator and innovation hub, smartup.life. And his most recent book, The Entrepreneur's Faces, which he wrote with his partner, Susanna Camp, is a riveting look into the different paths different types of entrepreneurs can take to success. Jonathan was born and raised in San Francisco. Both his parents were educated on the East Coast. His mother went to Mount Holyoke and his father graduated from Harvard Law School. They moved the family to California where Jonathan and his two brothers and sister became obsessed with soccer, a sport that would play an outsized role in his life later on. In high school and later while studying rhetoric at UC Berkeley, Jonathan became interested in journalism. He became known for writing investigative articles that exposed wrongdoing among the faculty and school administration. He played varsity soccer at Berkeley, but he also found himself gravitating toward the growing tech scene in the Bay Area. He started studying coding and technical writing, and after graduating, he started writing user manuals for software companies. But not long after he was out in the world, he started noticing a slew of new magazines that covered nothing but technology and the rich startup culture that was taking hold across Northern California. Jonathan was enthralled. 
they quickly had all these magazines here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I was very quickly writing for PC World magazine for the IBM PC, a number of other magazines. And then I actually had a real job. I was the first news editor, I'm proud to say, for a little tiny startup called Mac Week magazine for this tiny little company everyone was saying would fail called Apple. And we were right in Soma, right, where there's a ton of startups right now. We didn't know we were a startup. They didn't have the word startup. <laughs> we were definitely a startup. <laughs> we didn't get any. You were just in it. You didn't have a label. We didn't have a label. We were unofficial. Apple didn't do us any favors. We made stuff happen. It was a weekly. It was exciting. It was journalism. And that was a springboard for me. Yeah, so that was kind of like the wild, wild west of, of digital journalism in the tech sector. It was. And it worked originally for PC Week, just before Mac Weeks. So you crossed over from PCs to Macs? Yeah. All in a way, I, I quit my job. I had a fantastic job and then suddenly saw an opportunity for my first real startup, which was a book. And so I quit this great job at PC Week, which was the Bible of tech, really, to write a book about Bill Millard, the first billionaire, really, in the computer business. He had 600 computer land stores across America. And the only way you could buy a PC was in his stores. And he was a disciple of Werner Erhard, the evil Werner Erhard of S. And it was an incredible saga story that I was covering as a journalist. And then again, I, I just got off the bus and said, I got to quit and write a book. So go back to your your story about in high school when you kind of cracked the egg open on this investigative story. Were you still taking that same approach to these tech frontier stories that you were doing? In my life, in my career, whatever you want to call it, I have written quite a few investigative expose stories. That was my first <laughs> in high school. I had quite a big one in the world of tech. I wrote two major books about computer hackers. One about probably the most famous, notorious computer hacker of all time, Kevin Mitnick, wrote The, the Fugitive Game. And let's just say there was some funny business in this story, and I exposed quite a bit of it, especially in the world of supposed official journalism. So uh, that was a big one. I did. I spent years writing, believe it or not, something completely different, Barry Bonds and steroids. So there was this manic, ridiculous, racist assault on the biggest African-American star where tons of white players were doping for years and nothing happened. And I wrote two breakthrough stories in Playboy. And then for two years, I wrote for Yahoo Sports. And these Yahoo Sports in those days was huge. They had a million to two million readers for some of these stories. So that was, again, it was sort of crossing partly to tech because I was writing like almost instant stories from the trial of, of Barry Bonds. And they, I'd have to get a story up. They would tell me sometimes if I got the story up, up an hour later, they'd have half a million more readers. So if you want to talk about pressure from a journalist, <laughs> that was it. The 15-minute deadline. 
So let's talk about how you transitioned from this era to IDEO, which was known as a think tank and a creator of some really amazing products. What was your role like? How did that happen? Uh, I had written several uh, popular books. I'd written you know, The Fugitive Game, The Watchmen, these true crime, really, books. I mean, there were there were crimes, and they were narratives. And IDEO was hot. IDEO was on a major TV show, Nightline, and it was the best-selling, most-watched show of Nightline in history. And suddenly, there had to be a book, and there were, I was represented by a, a good agent, and there were six people who were interviewed to possibly be able to collaborate on an amazing book around innovation, which was a new thing. So I was, I can say I was on the ground floor of the innovation wave. This was more than 20 years ago. And I won that and collaborated with Tom Kelly, the brother of David Kelly, the founder. I've interviewed David Kelly more than anyone in history. And we went on to write two best-selling books together, the Art of Innovation and the 10 Faces of Innovation. What kind of products coming out of IDEO in that period of time? You know, IDEO really started with industrial design. A lot of designers from Stanford, David Kelly taught at Stanford, even though he was East Coast, originally Carnegie Mellon. They were working on the sort of pre-iPhones. They were working on things for Palm and other new devices. They were doing lots of work for Apple, lots of work for Samsung. I mean, the success of Apple and Samsung are hugely dependent on this relationship. Samsung had 20 designers like live at IDEO. And that's really the reason they sort of jumped ahead. But it was much more physical design in the beginning. Yeah, I was trying to think of some products that I knew that came out of there. I just think they always had this mystique of being like, oh, it's almost like Inspector Gadget or even like the wizard, like what was going to come out of the IDEO company, right? And I think that they were one of the first that, to my knowledge, that came out and talked about the industrial design and the art and design of things versus just here's your product that you can now go buy at your latest store. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, they deserve a lot of credit for really opening the field. And it was quite narrow, and, and you're correct. It was sort of, it just wasn't talked about. It, it, it wasn't celebrated. And I think these books, I'm proud of them because I think these books sort of changed how people look at innovation. And then you started to see these same principles, which were originally industrial design, designer methodologies applied to things in the digital world, to to software, to more broadly experiences that might not be technical at all and might not have any sort of traditional technical element. And then eventually, of course, IDEO really promoted and popularized the term design thinking. In our second book, The 10 Faces of Innovation, Tom Kelly and I really, we invented these terms. They didn't actually formally exist. We had about two months of brainstorms after the success of the first book because the publisher said, you have to have a second one because you can't have one bestseller. So we didn't lock ourselves in a room, but we had a room and we had great meetings. And we actually, one day we were like, Let's just start thinking about the incredible people at this company. 
and we wrote down Jane. There's a woman named Jane there. And it's like, who's Jane? Who's Jane? Jane's the anthropologist. And then we suddenly go, oh my God, we've got it. And then we just wrote down these people and we had these 10 classic archetypes. So in your life journey, you started as a journalist and then you get exposure from innovation and these entrepreneurs like Bezos and Jobs. And then you're at IDEO and you see the back end design and and the thoughtfulness being put into things. Did you have a moment where it just clicked and said, ah, or were you still in your head a writer? I think there's a lot of mythology around different professions and life paths. We all know like half the world wants to be a writer, right? A lot of people think being a writer is a beautiful thing. Being an author, what could be more than being an author? Being a novelist. And I was lucky, fortunate to have a fair amount of success as both a journalist and, and an author. And again, IDEO for me was one of those experiences where I failed in a way in that when I came to IDEO, I started to realize writing books is great, but being able to be around all these creative people, being able to see how they collaborate and how they come up with ideas made me realize there can be more than life alone, than the solitary life of a writer and an author. And I had almost six years. I wasn't working for IDEO. I was just writing these incredibly popular books with them. But I was down there all the time. And I was traveling and, and, and visiting other IDEO offices. So I was had this, again, practical experience in really an element of entrepreneurism and an element of innovation from the inside. One of the reasons I really wanted to talk to Jonathan was because of his most recent book, The Entrepreneur's Faces. Written with Jonathan's partner and fellow tech journalist, Susanna Camp, this book really spoke to me as both an entrepreneur myself and one who works with innovative founders and startups. The Entrepreneur's Faces identifies 10 different types of entrepreneurs and challenges readers to determine which one they most identify with. But what struck me most about the book is who it is not about. It's not about the superstar founder or celebrity entrepreneur. This isn't what you read when you want to find out how Elon Musk became Elon Musk. My takeaway from this book isn't that entrepreneurs are rock stars. It's that entrepreneurs are everywhere. We started working on this sort of in the 2016-17 timeframe when San Francisco was just jumping, when this was the place to go to all the meetups and all the events. And I was doing a lot of seminars for people coming from all over Europe. That's when I started doing a lot for people coming from Portugal and Brazil, but also from China. And we had this idea, we had to capture who these archetypes, because there were different archetypes. You know, the idea was more from the innovation, more of the corporate view or business view of innovation. This was the individual entrepreneurial type. And we traveled the world, almost 20 countries. And, and it's really there where I fell deeper in love with Portugal, which is a fantastic new global hub for entrepreneurism, you know perfectly positioned for, for Europe and Africa. And we wrote this book, which is, we made it happen even during the pandemic. And 
it's more the human side of innovation. One of the things that is interesting is oftentimes we just talk about the visionary, visionary, visionary. It's like the, we hear the visionary and disruptor consistently all the time in the tech sector and the Silicon Valley. But you actually identified that beyond the visionary, there's maker, outsider, evangelist, the athlete, which is you, the accidental, the conductor, the guardian, the leader. I took your little test. And the first time I did it, it said I was a, I was a collaborator. The second time I did it, it said I was a maker. So can you break down what these different uh, categories of entrepreneurs are, going beyond the visionary, because that's one we hear a lot, and why they're so important, and can you be a blend of more than one? Definitely, yes. One of the things I discovered in doing all these workshops with the earlier books was that when people sort of get a sense of their type and who they are, it can be sort of a, a revelation. And again, I wanted to make this new book, this new book with Susanna, we wanted to make it more about simply being entrepreneurial, which I believe you can be in any kind of profession. It's not the more classic, you need a million dollars of investment. You can be an entrepreneurial lawyer. You could be an entrepreneurial accountant. And you can be do this in a corporation as well. I actually am an athlete outsider. And, you know, we developed, and, and Susanna did a great job developing, you know, a simple test. But the truth is, if you do a more complex test, you would probably find you're a hybrid, as you are. And to give a simple thumbnail of them, the athlete is not literally an athlete. It, it is someone who has the athletic mindset, uber competitive, love a crazy deadline challenge, are okay with the unknown and the unpredictable. The outsider is when you are constantly looking for the edge. You're constantly trying to get outside of your, of your bubble into other worlds. For me, I've done this a lot lately in Portugal. The maker, that's who Susanna is, and it sounds like it's part of who you are. The maker realizes to make stuff happen, you have to make, you can't rely on others. You love prototyping. And, and we know people who are the exact opposite of this. I'd like to be a better maker, but I'm really not. And it's, it's core to almost every startup here in Silicon Valley and in San Francisco. Well, it seems like if you're making of teams, you have like a little bit of a tribe. You have all these different people coming together. How do you identify and to help entrepreneurs navigate to their best role? We hear uh, VCs, they have all these blanket statements. It's all about the team. And then, and then you actually never hear the types of the team or the archetypes of the team. And you have to have a great team. So you don't really want to have four visionaries on your team. That's not going to go too well, right? You need to have a maker. I believe you really need an athlete. You may need an accidental. And the accidental sounds odd, but the accidental is this person who just is so open to serendipity and will often take something that seems like a crazy hobby enthusiast endeavor and turn it into GoPro, right? So that's another archetype. And it depends a bit on your industry and your product or your service. Certain industries are going to need more evangelists and you may have more than one evangelist, right? 
And in certain kinds of teams, you're going to need more collaborators, right? And I think something we're missing now in this digital phase where it's hard to get together, we're missing the collaborator. You know, we're missing the critical things that only happen in the room and, and, and only happen when you have people with a big idea word is empathy. When you have people with empathy, when you're people who are yes anding and listening. Yeah, and in your book, it's interesting because you'd profile individuals that aren't necessarily famous. So you don't, it's not like a, a Steve Jobs and a Jeff Bezos are being profiled, but you have some really interesting personas that I feel relatable because they're like real people who had a moment or a pivot or an idea. And that makes it a lot more, I think, tangible to say, oh, you know what? It's like people like me, right? And I think that's what's inspiring about it. But with that said, have you thought about, oh, well, when I was interviewing Jeff Bezos or I was interviewing Steve Jobs, they were probably this, but ultimately they became that. I mean, can you now look at, stand back and look at those moments and, and identify what they were and what they ultimately became? Oh, yeah. And they were brilliant because if they weren't some of these types, they, they sort of manufactured it and they, they designed it. Amazon, I find kind of interesting because they're so good at the maker mindset, right? So Amazon, as you probably know, they prototype incessantly. And I saw some stat about, you know, the thousands of different prototypes that are essentially happening every day. But it's not beautiful, right? Their user interface, their, I could point out to you things that Steve Jobs would have just been screaming about, right? So there you see a case where with Bezos, it was all about performance. It was all about making revenue and changing fast. And he had no interest really in design or, or beauty or elegance. And I think that's the interesting thing that you find. And there can be, you know, different flowers, right? We can have different ways to bloom. And I'm hopeful that that's part of what the book shows is that if you really are that evangelist and, and every company needs one or two evangelists, I mean, you can put another word on this. You could call it sales. You could call it marketing. You could call it buzz, right? If you don't get some of this, you ain't going nowhere, right? So that's a beautiful role. So if that's where you're passionate and that's where you're good, my God, nothing happens really, I think, at some level without an evangelist. So you may have heard Jonathan mention Portugal a few times through our conversation. Portugal, and more specifically, the capital city of Lisbon, has become an important case study for Jonathan and Susanna. They've spent a great deal of time there since discovering that this beautiful but often overlooked European city has become one of the most important tech hubs in the world, not named Silicon Valley. So you take these archetypes, and now you've been around the world, and we're working with an accelerator in Portugal. Do these archetypes have no cultural or physical barriers? I mean, are the archetypes the same the same personas in other countries? Can you talk a little bit about that? Any social challenges or roadblocks? Oh, definitely, definitely. Me being okay with failing in American literature or, you know, quitting the soccer team when I was at the top of my game or or hear someone announcing they failed in their first two startups 
that doesn't happen. You don't talk about it that way. In Portugal, there's a word for failure, which is fracasso, fracasso. It sounds really bad. It is bad. You don't want to have a fracasso. So in many countries, it's much harder to be a startup. It's much harder to be an entrepreneur. And there's another area I'd say where they struggle is in what we're just talking about, the evangelist. We can sell nothing, right? Here in San Francisco, we can sell an illusion. We can sell, back in the day, vaporware, right? We can sell a promise. We can sell user interactions, right? And and most Europeans and most people from the rest of the world really struggle with that. And I think it's a funny thing. It's because, you know, really, it is not taught. You know, sales, marketing, buzz is not taught in high school, in university, it's frowned on. I just was in Portugal for three months. I happened to write a new story for Los Angeles Magazine called The New California Dream is in Portugal. And sometimes life is timing. So this story is the most popular story in the history of Los Angeles Magazine. It was almost instantly read by 120,000 people. Portugal only has 10 million people in the whole country. And it struck a chord because there is this increasing connection between these two countries. I, California is a country in my world. And Portugal, especially Lisbon and San Francisco, they both have red bridges, as you may know. They both have seven hills. They both have cable cars. And what's happening is there is a bridge now. And, and what's happening is... There are seven Portuguese unicorns, and four of them are here in the Bay Area with co-headquarters in the Bay Area, which is a lot for a tiny country. What companies, anybody noteworthy? Yeah, there's a brand new one, which is remote, which is focusing on remote workers and making it easy to hire. And they're a double unicorn, started just a little more than two years ago. They have a Portuguese founder and a Dutch founder, and they have office here in Lisboa. Unbabble, which is AI and crowdsourcing language technology, hugely used by hotels, airlines, et cetera. It's, it's an almost unicorn, also San Francisco. Feedzai, who's an amazing Portuguese startup. This is AI fighting financial fraud. It's going to be a very big company also here in Lisbon and TalkDesk. TalkDesk, they automated and simplified creating call desks. In your book, you talk about the different phases, the awakening, the shift, the place, the launch, the money, the test and scale. I oftentimes start working with my clients through my agency and that, that launch. Sometimes it's a little bit of the awakening if I've worked with them before, but you go through these these different phases with them. Do they even know they're an entrepreneur? I mean, do they already, what is the litmus test to say, okay, I'm an entrepreneur and now I, this is my archetype and now I'm going to go through all this. What's the process? Yeah, well, the, the real entrepreneurs, they have some technology, they have a business model, they have maybe some early funding. But your question's a great one. And there are many stages of possible evolution for a startup, for an entrepreneur. But before you get to what you were talking about, say the launch, right, or actually making money, 
you have the three core ones, which we call the awakening, the shift, and place. And the awakening is, everyone knows what an awakening is. It's, wow, I could come up with this system and no one is doing this. It'll be huge value to all these people. We can do it. It's fantastic. Or an awakening is, I hate my job as an accountant. And that idea, Bobby and I were talking about, let's try it, right? But the awakening, you can fall back to sleep. It goes nowhere (laughs) unless you take the next step, which we call the shift, where is sort of an early maker or even pre-maker thing. It doesn't actually have to be a prototype, but you're actually starting to do things. It's You're getting beyond the dreaming. And we all have friends and colleagues who stick in the awakening. They're great at awakening. And we've become inured to this and skeptical because we know they won't shift. So the most important thing you can do as a mentor or an advisor is to help people make a shift. And then I think you have to be really smart about helping them find their place or places, which are both physical and digital. So we talked about teams and being on the right team. You finding your place is finding your right teams. And this, of course, can be online teams. But I really believe the world is going to move back towards physical as well. And of course, San Francisco has been a place to make things happen. Lisbon now is also a place to make things happen. It's finding that place in that community. But it's a mistake to try to think you're going to create San Francisco in Lisboa or you're going to create San Francisco in Amsterdam. What has happened dramatically, and I'm quite excited about because I see this happening between California and Portugal, is that the pandemic sort of opened the box and made it quite clear that you need to have a global team, that it's insane to think everything can happen in San Francisco or Palo Alto or San Jose. And obviously, distance was erased during the pandemic. So now I think what's happening is the the wise people who are trying to solve great problems, not just problems to create value for customers, but social problems, environmental problems, want to collaborate with people in other countries and create that team. And that's what this company, Remote, I just mentioned, the unicorn, they make it really easy to hire those people anywhere, instantly. You can hire someone tomorrow in Lisbon or wherever you want. So what's happening now is it's like you can put these pieces together and maybe a big piece or some of the big pieces are in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, but they're going to be in Europe and they're going to be in Asia as well. So if you go back to this whole process of change, the pandemic itself, do you think it's increased entrepreneurship or is it depleted? I think there's some data points. I mean, there's a lot of historical evidence that tough times and business challenges and pandemics themselves can be opportunities. Many people will suffer. Sadly, many people you know, have died, will die. But the reality is when the rules change, when habits change, when behaviors change, it's the ideal time to start a new product, a new service, a new experience. And the world 
it has changed more in these two years and probably than in the previous 20 in some ways. So I think there is a huge opportunity. And I think there's a second opportunity is that enough people, this is the one I'm personally excited about, enough people have enough money and have started to develop more of a soul and maybe more of a conscience that they're willing to create businesses that weren't created before, that may have more to do with societal struggles, with the environment, with diversity, because their mind has been opened during this pandemic. I'm now collaborating with a different company, a new company actually in Lisbon, to build out this bridge between San Francisco and Lisbon. And I think that model is going to be strong. There'll be similar bridges between other cities where you can have this sort of shared best practices. For instance, Lisbon is 100 times better at dealing with the drug epidemic and homeless than San Francisco, right? So there are these things where if you develop these really relationships, where if you develop these teams, you can tackle the big problems that have not been solved. Elon Musk hasn't done anything really for traffic. He hasn't done anything for the homeless. We sort of have this fascination with the uber successful and rich, and we don't focus on the real societal environmental change. So that's where I'm hopeful. That was Jonathan Littman. I asked him what was so unique to Lisbon that it's become the newest poster city for innovation and entrepreneurship. He said it started during the global financial crisis in 2007. The Great Recession hit Portugal hard and put tens of thousands of people out of work. Collectively, they realized that with nothing to lose, they might have to innovate their way out of the crisis. Tech leaders in Lisbon look to Silicon Valley as inspiration to build an ecosystem of entrepreneurship that has made them a model city for other small tech hubs around the world. Meanwhile, Jonathan Lippmann continues to mentor Lisbon's future tech leaders applying his wisdom from entrepreneurial faces. Thank you for listening. Follow Before it Happen on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe rate and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs.